Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a 1,000 certified organic, family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thrivingfarmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. The current application season ends soon, so be sure to apply today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, my guest is Reed Alloway, who is a farmer, tinkerer, and dad working at Torsol Cooperative Farm in Quebec with his wife and a multitude of coworkers and friends. Being part of a co-op farm has allowed Reed to pursue his interests in appropriate technology for farmers and farming down the avenues of collaborative design and tool building and also the electrification of tools and machines for small farms. Reed also works with Thiessen Tillage Equipment on tool design and distribution of appropriate tools for small farms. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm sorry that's a terribly wordy intro when I hear you read it back to me. Um, I could have proofread that better. That's totally fine. Um, and we've actually had your co um, one of your co-op members, uh, Dan Dan on, and we've had um, Beeson Tillage on as well. So I'm I'm blanking on his first name. Forgive me for that. Uh, Ryan. Yeah. Ryan. Yes. Yeah, um, I, we've had. Yeah. I was pretty sure that you. I knew that you had that you knew Dan and had interviewed Dan uh, getting on a couple of years ago, but uh, I thought that you had also interviewed Ryan at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's getting you on. It's kind of the trifecta. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So share a little bit, obviously we like your background. How did you get into farming? Um, I oddly enough came to it through academia and activism. I was studying at uh, McGill's downtown campus in Montreal and got into uh, sort of food politics stuff, but more from an activism angle of realizing how badly screwed up our food system mm. was for mm-hmm. production and distribution and equity and all that. Um, but as I got more, got closer and closer to the food system in a concrete way, rather than just an abstract academic way, I realized that uh, the farmers I was meeting seemed to have the most interesting lives and uh, they weren't waking up and going to work in an office. They were waking up and fixing irrigation and then planting cabbages and then mm. fixing fences. And I thought, oh, that's actually going to be a better fit for my interests and skills and uh, patience level for, uh, for sitting still. So mm-hmm. gradually, I, I did end up finishing my undergrad degree, but uh, only barely. I was, we were already farming here. Uh, the five of us at the outset back in 2005. And the only reason I finished my undergrad was because there was some government grant money that hinged on me finishing huh. it. Otherwise I was like, nah, forget it. I don't care. This is what I want to be doing is farming. I don't need a piece of paper that says I know how to learn. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then you started farming now and did you start at the beginning in the cooperative or was you to find that later? Yeah, no, this is the only farm that I've ever started. Hopefully it'll be the only farm that we'll ever have to work on. Uh, We worked on other people's farms as apprentices and uh, and gradually grew into sort of managerial positions. Uh, My four colleagues with whom I founded the farm are all super competent go-getters, but none of us had any uh, land in our families. None of us came from active farming families. And so mm-hmm. the, the opportunity to rent the land came up at the same time that we were kind of casting about as to what would be 
the next chapter for us. And uh, a lot of us were, we were living together and sometimes we were working together on other people's farms in the summer. And when the opportunity to rent the land that we're now on came up, uh, it seemed like a natural progression for us to register a business in a really democratic business structure and, and pursue it together collaboratively. Mm-hmm. And the piece of land which you're on, remind me, it's it's a, it's a nice quality loam. Um, it's relatively flat, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's it's about. I've surveyed a lot of our property with uh, transit and uh, yep. laser levels for different projects, and there's there's probably close to two inches of relief from <laughs> one corner of the farm to the other. It's incredibly flat here. We're on the the bottom of the ancient Champlain Sea. There's ah. about 60 feet of clay between the bedrock and the topsoil. Uh, and then there's, we're fortunate enough that there, there's a nice layer of, of a sort of sandy loam on the surface, mm-hmm. but with the clay subsoil that it's almost perpetually gorged with water, it really gives us a nice kind of a security against drought. Whereas any, any crop that's got 10 or 12 inches of foliage also has 10 or 18 inches of roots, and it's probably got some moisture down in the clay. So we have a little bit less of a scramble when uh, when it gets hot and dry in the summer. And generally, I'd say the, the land that we're farming is really easy land to farm on. And so it's let us, um, it's let us succeed relatively more quickly and, uh, and then refine our systems rather than scrambling to make eke out a living from a, a rock pile or a, a sand sandy beach um, so that we've been able to focus on other things because the the ecosystem that we're we moved into when we took over this piece of land is uh, quite fertile and uh, and we're in the we're in Quebec so we're not uh, you know there's still snow on the ground uh, uh-huh. here in uh, beginning of April but we're in the southernmost part of Quebec and uh, we're we're right near major highways and enough population density that marketing isn't a, a huge nightmare. Um, so yeah, we feel really lucky to have landed on this, this land and we rented it from some other organic farmers for uh, something like 10 or 12 years. And then eventually we severed mm. portion of the land and purchased it from them, which was a great kindness of them to, to do for us. because They didn't really need, they didn't gain yeah. much from it other than more stability for our business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, because um, I wanted to, what I wanted to talk about with the soil type is because we want as we talk on the tools. I think it's very important when you're talking tools to know the soil type that you're working with tools on. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you've got that, and the farm mix is you do a couple hundred CSA baskets, and then you're also now moving more and more into seed production. Exactly. So CSA was our target and our focus from the very beginning. We did uh, farmers markets for many, many years, but gradually uh, be- we discovered that we really did like the idea of having weekends. And uh, once we figured out how to do it, and as the seed business was growing, we were able to stop doing farmers markets just about a year before the pandemic. Mm. And now we just do CSA and the seed business, which is production and contracts to other growers regionally. And then uh packaging, cleaning. And so that's a year round enterprise, which is now employing, I would say somewhere between five and seven people, uh, pretty, pretty steadily year round. And then the, the vegetable operations are comparable size, maybe five to, to nine people in the peak season. So if we're all at work in the summer, there might be 20 people here, but wow. it's not always, not always that many people, but yeah. it's, ra- yeah. it's rarely, it's rarely quiet. Yeah. That's amazing that the seed business has grown that much and it's really cool to see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a really nice uh, addition to, to our farm. And it's again, something that wouldn't have happened except for the cooperative model that allows people to spend a bit more energy pursuing their personal passions rather than scrambling just to make ends meet and keep keep the ship afloat. Exactly. All right. Well, let's move a little bit into, you know, your zone of genius here, which is the tooling, the electrification. How did you get in? Did, when you first started the farm, did you automatically realize that that's what you wanted to focus on and that was going to be your passion or did that kind of come a little bit later? 
when we started, we had uh, quite modest means. You know, we had one used car between the five of us, and uh, we ended up with one old tractor and then another one that wasn't quite so old and uh, a BCS. But I've, I've always been I've always been good with machines. I like figuring out how things work. Uh, I have aptitude for learning it quickly. And then the prospect of being able to make things better through tool adaptation is uh, it's an easy sell on a small diversified farm because we're doing 700 different tasks. And if we can make 20 of them easier with uh, a modest investment in some form of technology that, that lightens the burden or makes it more ergonomic or makes it faster and more productive, then it's a, it's a pretty, it's not a no brainer. You can't spend all of your time doing this, but um, over the years, it, it's easy to invest time and uh, and money in ways that everyone appreciates quite a lot. So I I think I knew that it would be one of my sort of contributions to the farm from the outset, but uh, it took us a long time to get to the get to where we are now. We were in we're starting our 18th year now, and I would say we're just about getting to the point where we've got mechanical weeding more or less understood and functioning so it's not a you know you can do it you could do it a lot faster than us but uh we were also mm -hmm. starting we were starting from scratch and uh, so that it was a long slow process um yeah so with that mechanical weeding so you started out with you know basically nothing what was the first weeding implement that you guys picked up well, the easiest crop to weed has got to be potatoes. Mm -hmm. um, and so even before we did anything else, uh, I made a potato hiller with some, uh, oh, are they Lilliston, the rolling cultivators that have the kind of 3D rotation gangs of, uh, of rolling spiders? Not, not the same as the Bizarities, but uh, anyway, I, I picked bits and pieces out of the neighbor's scrap pile and was able to make a, a potato hiller that worked adequately well. Um, but then all of the, the harder to weed crops are a lot more of a puzzle and they require much greater precision. You can't really do it with rear mounted three point hitched equipment. Uh, and at that point, the kind of renaissance of the walk behind weeding tractors hadn't, hadn't mm -hmm. begun or it certainly hadn't gotten to my attention yet uh, at that point. And so the next step for us was I bought a, a, a hefty G, which is kind of like a late seventies mm -hmm. improvement, uh, copy or homage to the Alice G. And, uh, I picked up a pair of them cheap at an auction and we bought a basket weeder direct from the budding mm -hmm. folks in Michigan. And a friend went and picked it up and we had this brand new, brand new that it looked like it could be could be a 1950s model but it was a uh, 2010 yes. and they they were such fun to deal with the, the one of the brothers whose name escapes me now uh you know was answering the phone and making out invoices on the welding table in the shop He's, yeah. he does, doesn't even have an office and uh that they were using their dad's original jigs to make these uh these weeding tools so there, that the landscape was a little bit less well uh, developed back then, before the advent of Tillmore, and before uh, there was there wasn't quite as much uh, European equipment being mm -hmm. imported, or or maybe I just wasn't aware of it. But uh, the landscape for uh, appropriate small scale weeding tools seemed a lot uh, a lot more challenging to navigate than uh, than it does now. Yeah. I think 2013, 2014 is really when the European stuff started really making its way across the pond. Yeah. Here in Quebec, it's always a little bit of a, a different story because there's so much back and forth with Europe. There are tons ah. of expats here yeah. and uh, there are lots of farmers who are, you know, they'll, they'll see something while they're visiting their, their brother in France or Holland and they'll say, I want one of those and they'll put it in a container and bring it over themselves. So we're often a few years ahead and the, the farmers, the, the motivated, ambitious farmers with ties to Europe are sometimes even pushing the, the dealers. They're saying, listen, I saw this and I want you to bring it in or I'm going to bring it in myself. And I, so it, it's, it's fun. It's neat. And we, I feel like we've got a little bit of a, 
a head start sometimes, but for the small scale stuff, um, there weren't a lot of, you know, we're such a, we're such a piddling little market, all these small growers, even if there are 500 of us and each one of us wants to spend $5,000, that's still like two sales in Mm -hmm. the cash crop world. So we're not a real appealing clientele. Um, you got to find people like, uh, like Ryan Thiessen and the Steiners at uh, Tillmore who are really just passionate about making this work mm-hmm. for, for the betterment of humanity rather than for personal enrichment. Correct. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch the Tillmores go ahead. Well, the Steiner family go ahead and, and, you know, literally get rid of a cash cow to start working on this company, which is obviously a, 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 a project of passion. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat. And uh, yeah. And I've really enjoyed working with uh, with Ryan and getting to know the the Tillmore folks. We act as a, I'm, I do sales in uh, Quebec because I'm can speak French, and so mm-hmm. I've been helping with uh, with Tyson and uh, Tillmore sales for the last couple of years and selling them through our big regional producers co-op. And it's really fun. It's like a combination of uh, fulfilling my my desire to help others and, uh, and share what we've learned over the years, and then also help other farms to quite literally better equip themselves to, to face these challenges. And it's really, it's gratifying work. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned a little bit ago, and I, I think I'm not sh- sure how deep we want to get into this, but you talked about how you can't do rear mount uh, cultivation and so I wanted you to break that down a little bit about why, because a lot of people do who are beginning with this think you can just throw, you know, a cultivator behind a tractor and you're all set to go, but you can't. Yeah. And it's a partly a geometry puzzle and partly a, you, we don't, we only have eyes in the front of our heads. And, uh, but the, the biggest challenge is that our rear three point hitches, uh, if you look at a tractor from a bird's eye view and you start modifying the steering up front, when you steer up front, it's like it pivots around kind of around the operator's seat or the center point of the rear axle. Mm-hmm. And so when you correct to the left, the tool immediately kicks right. Um, and you can you can kind of attenuate this by um, by building systems that try to track the bed and then slacken the, the check chains or the uh, whatever stabilizer you have so that the the implement being pulled behind the tractor is being being dragged rather than being uh, actively swung left and right. Uh-huh. But it, but it's a challenge. And for for a long time, the like the Williams tool system that was really popular in the '90s and early 2000s, they had a an approach where they tried to make kind of raised beds, and then they had some some cones that would try to follow the flanks of the bed uh, and keep the the frame of the weeder centered on the bed rather than following the tractor. But I never talked to anyone who said it really worked all that well. Mm. And uh, the more common approach short of a specific purpose-built tractor, putting the tools somewhere else is to put a second operator on the rear mounted tool. And then the, the primary tractor driver just has to focus on going dead straight and staying centered on the bed and not try to look back. And then Mm -hmm. the second operator rides on the tool and operates a a steering rudder or a steering wheel, which then provides correction for the tool, which is slackly mounted behind the tractor. And so that, that approach works really uh, pretty well. And most manufacturers who build weeding rigs um, have come up with some variation of this. There's a half decent one from uh, Cult Cress, which uh, works okay. And uh, there's some that are hydraulic. Schmatzer makes one. Most of the European manufacturers mm-hmm. make one. And uh, and Thyssen is just starting to get one out with the benefit that it'll have uh, modular tooling. So the toolbar with your setup, be it a basket weeder or sweeps and fingers or whatever, you can have a multitude of setups, each of them on their own toolbar, and then they swap in and out with no tooling or with no, uh, yeah, without hand tools. It's a, awesome. It's like a yeah. quick, quick hitch tool carrier with second operator correction. So we're excited to get that into people's hands as an intermediate step that's a lot cheaper than moving to 
a dedicated cultivating tractor where and a dedicated cultivating tractor, you move the tooling from behind the operator to mm -hmm. in front and you mount it under the, under the middle of the tractor, like, like an LSG or a farm all or, or any of those, but modern ones are tend to have a, a lot more space beneath the, that arch frame to, uh, to accommodate more tooling. Yeah. And, um, and it comes back to, to the size of your farm. So, you know, beginning, obviously you have one tractor and then the larger you get sometimes, then you start going to the dedicated. I mean, I've seen, oh gosh, I forget the farm in uh, Wisconsin that I've been to, um, but they had like six or eight G's all yeah. set up for slightly different uh, versions of cultivation. Yeah. Yeah. And you can either have, and yeah, definitely there's a scale thing and there's a kind of a logical progression. And this is another spot where I find the, uh, the Renaissance around the two wheel cultivating tractor is really neat because it lets people reap the benefits of row crop farming and mechanical cultivation with a much lower kind of buy-in price. And it scales pretty well right up to you know, a substantial acreage you can operate with, with walk behinds. Mm -hmm. And then even if you grow to the point where you don't just want a two wheel cultivating tractor, you also want a four wheeled cultivating tractor. It's not like you have to throw the two wheeler away. It means that on those days, Correct. those days when you've got more area to cover than you could possibly get done before it rains. Well, someone's going to be out with the two wheeler and someone's going to be out with the four wheeler and they, you organize your day and you can cover a lot mm -hmm. of ground. So yeah. we've gotten, we've gotten to that point where we will run the two or, or three cultivation machines simultaneously. And uh, it's kind of, it's probably overkill on some days, but you know, if it means that everyone gets to punch out at four 30 and we, are better rested the next day and we don't miss a window of opportunity, then mm -hmm. it's a small price to pay to have that extra equipment in the fleet. Absolutely. Um, let's walk through a little bit of the two wheel tractor. Cause I know that's something that kind of felt like it just jumped on the scene. Um, maybe around 2013, 2014, or was it even later than that? I'm not, well, not good with dates. And I feel like it would depend who you talk to, like the, uh, Wagner brothers in the States or Jason Weston. I feel like Jason might've discovered the planet junior and figured out how to use it earlier than even yeah. 2010. I'm not sure, but it hadn't really gotten, uh, gotten broad press. Um, I thought I was relatively in the loop about mm -hmm. far farm geek machinery and weeding stuff. And, uh, I didn't know about them and I was really, impressed and excited when I, when I did learn about them and I promptly got my hands on one with no engine and put an electric motor on it. And I was like, yes, now we're talking, this is a good machine. Um, because it gets it, it, there's such a great simple platform. The idea being that you have a, a lightweight two wheel tractor that's got good clearance as opposed to a, a BCS, which is kind of like a mobile power takeoff that you can you can run power tools from a bcs but it's not meant for draft jobs like it's not very good at pulling things um, other than maybe a trailer but mm -hmm. the the lightweight cultivating two wheelers they'll straddle a row even up to substantial foliage and they'll let you run down that row and the pivot point for the tooling is right at the axle so that when you correct left the tool kind of slowly corrects left. And as you walk along, even at a, at a quick walking pace, you can make these really intuitive steering corrections and keep the tool perfectly centered over the row. And it's fast and it's really fast to learn, which is such a great asset uh, on a farm where you've got a lot of staff and a lot of people who are don't necessarily have experience operating tractors. It takes a long time for someone to get good with an Alice G or even, uh, you know, a, a newer four wheel cultivating tractor. There are a lot of things to kind of manage all at once, but the two wheelers, people pick it up really fast. Mm -hmm. So okay. I really like that about them. Um, and we adopted one and, uh, even though we already had a four wheeled cultivating tractor pretty well set up, uh, once we had a two wheeler on the farm, uh, in the first year, last year was the first year that it was really always working 
and I wasn't taking it apart and breaking stuff and making it so people could depend on it last year. And by the end of the year, people were fighting over it and they're like, Reed, you have to make another one. So now I'm getting another one ready for this year because we were already in competition for it. Very cool. Now, and you um, actually took some of the older ones and replaced them so they're electric. So do you want to talk? I mean, I, I guess maybe before we dive into that, do you want to go into like a little bit about the whole uh, revolution of the electric, you know, what you're doing with electric, or do you want to dive into that as the electric machine first? Sure. Well, the two wheelers are a great example and they, they'll probably allow me to explain it as well as anything. But now that there are um, small energy dense, lightweight batteries available at a reasonable cost, there's kind of no reason for us to be stuck with small gas engines and small gas engines are pretty mediocre as power plants because you can't really vary their speed. They don't have good torque. You can't stop them and start them easily a hundred times. But on a small farm, really a lot of what we do is like modest power demand, like somewhere in the, often you only need a couple hundred, you know, maybe you need, sometimes you only need 500 watts worth of power to to get your task done Mm -hmm. really capably. And sometimes you need five kilowatts to haul a, a harvest trailer, but we rarely need 50 horsepower. And a lot of the time, just a little bit of power intelligently applied in a way that's kind of like smooth and supple and intuitive and also safe would be really a huge boon. And now that the, now that you don't have to carry 50 pounds of lead around to store your electricity in, um, now that that same 50 pound becomes a five pound battery pack for the same energy storage. Now we're talking and, and, and there's just no, and there, there are no more like technical hurdles between mm-hmm. uh, what we can do, even just as a, you know, I sometimes refer to my work as like a bottom feeder tinkerer. I don't have a substantial annual budget for this stuff, but I'll buy a secondhand motor off of uh, Kijiji or like our equipment mm-hmm. to Craigslist and then I'll put it on a shelf. And then when I need it, it's there. And I only spent 20 bucks on it and someone will offer me a, broken forklift and I'll strip it for parts and put those parts on the shelf. And then, and then when I come up with the next project uh, and, and there's a kind of a nice um, among the do it yourselfers in the electric vehicle world, there's a similar kind of camaraderie and mutual support that you find among small scale uh, ecological farmers where people, everyone knows it's not about like getting rich or succeeding or, Mm-hmm. being the best at it it's really it's fun to help each other out and people will will go out of their way to say yeah sure i uh, i've got a golf cart axle I'll, I'll bring it over i've been meaning to clean out my shed i'll just bring it to you and they won't let you pay them and then you've got it and if you turn it into something useful then they're pleased as can be and that's that's all the payment they wanted so that's been really fun and and it's been well received on our farm where the the shift from uh, having these kind of smaller tools that that work adequately well, but they're always kind of irksome. Like a, a BCS is a great little machine, but it's really a great machine once you get rid of the gas engine because mm. it's just smoother and quieter. It does everything that it could do before better. And most of its bad personality traits have been eliminated. So that was one of the early conversions that we did here and uh, we could never go back. I think if, if ours was stolen or lost in a fire, we'd just, I'd, I'd have to buy another one and convert it right away. Cause no one could handle going back to a gas powered BCS after, uh-huh. after so many years of it being more pleasant to use. Yeah. So you're looking at the, the smell goes away, the, um, the noise goes away and it's just going to be way better geared, right? Or just, it's more easy to kind of uh, very exact, dial it in exactly what you're looking for, right? Yeah, exactly. A lot of the vibration also goes away, particularly with the BCS. That's a, mm. a major consideration. People are fatigued by the, yeah. the vibration and the noise and the, and the exhaust. Ours is primarily being used inside some unheated high tunnels. And so the absence of exhaust and not having to, manage your roll up sides and all your ventilation in function of the 
the machine that's creating, that's pumping toxins into your, the air you're breathing is a, a nice change. But uh, I think more than anything, the, the control that you have with a, a, a really smooth variable speed drive system is, uh, it's hard to overemphasize, but as soon as people try it, they're like, oh, right. Yes. So now instead of having a, a clutch that I, I have to kind of feather through the friction point and I'm worried about, you know, the accelerator, how much, how much throttle I'm giving it is the engine lugging. And, oh, and while I was worrying about all those things, I, I crossed the guideline that I was trying to, trying to stick to. Whereas with the electric drive, you can, you can run right along a string in the greenhouse and, and almost never touch it or hug mm. up against it. And as soon as you get too close, you just let go of the throttle. The whole thing stops in about half a second and you can back up three inches and turn yeah. a little bit and correct. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's just smoother and better and it makes people happier and less tired. And uh -huh. in general, it, in general, it, it, it ends up making the tool, I don't know, make up a number and be like, I'd say it typically makes a tool 30 or 40% better to, and, and a, you know, a tractor is already a super useful tool on a farm. If you can make uh -huh. it 30 or 40% better, get rid of a bunch of the irritants and, uh, and everyone is happy with the result. It's, it's definitely a win. Yeah. Joining me is Ariel from the Real Organic Project. Ariel, welcome. Thank you. So Ariel, tell us a little bit about what the Real Organic Project stands for. Yeah, so the Real Organic Project is a farmer-led nonprofit uh, that manages an add-on certification for certified organic. And the whole idea is we want to give farmers that are doing things the right way within the spirit of the rules a way to differentiate themselves from some of the corporate organic on supermarket shelves that only meets the most cynical definition of something that would actually be organic. So what that means is we're only working with farms that are growing their crops in healthy, biologically active soil, as opposed to growing hydroponically. And we're only working with farms that are raising their animals with real access to the outdoor and pastures, as opposed to these confinement operations, which again, unfortunately, are dominating the organic sections of many of our supermarkets. But Michael, I know you're actually interested in potentially pursuing real organic project certification for your farm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why, why that's of interest to you? Yeah, I've always been a big proponent of the Real Organic Project because they stand for what I stand for. You know, the feeling about putting the organic back in the ecosystem of the farm. I mean, the problem when you have this corporate organic is that it's been watered down to lowest common denominator. Then, you know, frequently there's more plastic than plants in some of these systems. Um, Real Organic is more about caring about those who care about the soil. And, um, you know, going back to that original idea of why we farm organically, which is, you know, we want the birds to be singing in the background and the, the soil to be alive and the earthworms. And when you look at some of these corporate organic, it's just as sterile as um, the conventional farms that we're competing with. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well put. And I think what we really want to do is find a way to uplift and differentiate the folks that are genuinely doing things the right way for the right reasons and not just finding the simplest, easiest way to check a bunch of boxes. Mm, absolutely. And if folks want to find out more about the Real Organic Project, you can go to realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That's realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. All right. So small scale equipment with electric is, is way to go. Where does that start to phase out where like, cause I know I've seen like John Deere is starting to come out with these massive tractors, which are electric. And I'm just not sure if that ever is going to work, but I may be wrong. Where do you feel like that changes? Yeah, I think it, it depends on there, there's a break somewhere in the in the spectrum where it doesn't make sense to be trying to do it as a DIY project anymore because the, the burden of engineering it to be safe and effective is too great. Um, but like we have, uh, we, we had our, we switched delivery vehicles from a diesel sprinter to an E450, a Ford E450 with a 16 foot cube box mm -hmm. on it. And we did, we chose that because there was a firm locally 
that builds an electric drivetrain for the E-Series. And so we took them a used truck and a massive amount of money, and they converted the truck and gave it back to us as a fully electric vehicle with uh, the gas V8 on a pallet in the trunk. And, mm. uh, and so that given, given that we have a limited um, delivery, what's the, I'm trying to, I'm getting the French. Conference yeah, or... It's like the, the route or the. Yes. Distance. Yeah. Our route distance is, is limited enough that we were able to do this, even though it's kind of borderline. Like I, the, this truck has about a, it's probably about 150, maybe it's, it's maybe as much as a hundred miles range in the summer mm-hmm. and, uh, and closer to 60 or 70 in the winter, but we don't really need it in the winter. And in the summer, that's more than enough to do our, our CSA deliveries. And if we have to go further, we can recharge at fast chargers on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to plan your whole day around it because it's not the same as filling up with, with liquid yeah. fuel. But the question was more about scale. And I think that like somewhere in that range between uh, a golf cart and a pickup truck, there's a pretty appreciable break at some point that's not much past golf cart where it doesn't make sense for us to be trying to do it ourselves because there's enough power and torque and energy storage and um, it just gets to be a big and a, a serious engineering puzzle. And for road going vehicles, uh, depending on your jurisdiction, it may or may not be legal for you to convert a vehicle that's going on public roads. Mm, uh, okay. And so for us, it was, it wouldn't have been an option. Like we weren't even considering regardless of the engineering challenge, it's not allowed for you to drive a, con- a self-converted vehicle on, uh, on the roads in Quebec. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, it kind of used to be the case that there was a more of a gray area and it wasn't as clearly defined. And there were a bunch of do it yourself conversions on the roads. And, uh, they're actually hilariously, it's, they're now a source of, uh, of affordable used parts because everyone's had to park them once mm. they once they tightened the screws and said you know if you drive those vehicles you will be liable for everything because you are not insured and you're breaking the law and everyone was like okay well that experiment's over i'm parking it yeah so did they have was there a couple cases of like uh problems or like accidents or did they just preemptively say well we just don't want people messing with their own stuff I think it's a liability issue, especially in a, in a jurisdiction where uh, liability insurance is managed collectively through a, through a state entity as it is uh-huh. here. They, you know, it, it didn't take long for an engineer at the government body that manages uh, vehicle licensing and insurance to be like, you know what? I am not going to be on the hook for this. this. Yeah. I don't think that there were even instances of, uh, of problems. It was a, a preemptive uh someone realized that there was there was a risk and they didn't want it on their shoulders and uh so it it just got they just tightened the tightened the loophole and uh now they'll say things like sure if you can provide us with a full engineering report signed by uh, a licensed engineer and if you can provide us a second vehicle for crash testing we will consider licensing your do-it-yourself kit so it's a pretty strong disincentive i don't hardly no one's doing it except for in a commercial sense like the folks that did our truck conversion for us they were willing they put you know five to ten years worth of engineering work into making their drivetrain and doing crash testing and Mm -hmm. towing the line at every single turn until the government agency was able to say yes you've really done your homework and we are going to license those vehicles for use on the public roads Mm -hmm. so it's a different scenario a different set of circumstances on farms but at the same time you know i look at our fleet of diesel tractors and i can kind of see how i would do our our 1970s fiat utility tractor and i kind of think i'll get to it someday but it's in the sort of 40 50 horsepower range and then we've got two other diesel tractors and yeah it's like by the time i get to them 
I'll have been doing this for a long time and I probably could do it. But at the same time, I kind of wish someone would sell me an electric tractor, you know, mm-hmm. just there, one yeah. of them, maybe that would be good. Yeah. Um, there is the company out of California. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's out of California, but there is some brand of electric tractors out there. Yeah. And in fact, that was, I had my eye on the select track because I was like, okay, that's going to yes. be, that'll replace our Landini. And then it's just the Valtra. I need to loader. I'm not sure what I'll do for the third one, but, and I, I had, I back and forth with the, uh, the the guy who's behind select track and he's a really neat guy and that it was a it took it looked like a really promising uh project i don't have a sense that it that it of where it's going now currently they're primarily selling a a rebadged indian uh electric compact tractor that i don't think a whole lot of mm, but um okay but it's probably um a good way to you know, fill the coffers and make money while they work on, hopefully they'll be, they'll be releasing or starting to make more of their own tractors in the coming years. And I, I hold out hope that they may uh, succeed and survive and, and not be swallowed or quashed by John Deere and the like, but, yeah. uh, but we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Yeah, Cause you think about a lot of tractor work is just like a little bit here and a little bit there, which would lend itself very well for electric, such as the tractor that's pulling the manure spreader around the field is maybe a little bit better to be a, a diesel or a gas powered. Um, but the one that's doing the loading, because for you know 90% of the time, it's just sitting there until it needs to actually do the loading. I think that's the one that could be much easier electric. Yeah, definitely. And especially on a small farm, uh, there's an enormous amount of kind of idle time or uh, time that's spent um, doing things that are way below peak output. And so a, a machine that has a nominal peak output of 30 horsepower or 50 horsepower, often it's actually doing things that might require two or three or four and and with a, an internal combustion engine, you don't really get the economy when it runs down at, at, its, at its low range. It still burns a, a meaningful amount of fuel, whereas a, an electric drivetrain, it really only consumes the energy that is demanded by the task being performed. And there's a little bit of a variability of efficiency, like they're going to be, it's going to be more efficient at converting the stored energy into work at a certain RPM. But on the whole, my experience has been that I'm always building my battery packs too big because mm. I do the kind of rough calculation of how much runtime I want and how much I think the machine is going to demand. And it comes back demanding far less than I've expected. And over the course of the day, we're not even running the packs down. And for the most part, I keep, I keep kind of setting my markers back and each machine, I, I go with a slightly smaller pack than what I think I should do. And so far it's just been saving mm. me time and money because the vast majority of the time, the machines don't need as much, as much power as we think they do, or as much runtime, or we, we get the runtime that we need with mm-hmm. a lot less stored energy than we think we would need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, gotcha. Now, I think Ryan has done, is he have some electric uh, two-wheel tractor that he's bringing in house now? Yeah, so that's a, it's a really uh, lovely, elegant machine that uh, was built by a guy named Andrew Mutzers. And uh, Andrew has joined myself and Ryan at, on that project under the banner of Tyson Tillage. And we're going to try to bring Andrew's agrarian two-wheel tractor to market in the in the next couple of years and we're really excited about it andrew's built two prototypes both of which are are really nice elegant totally functional machines he's been using one on his farm uh, and loaned it to someone else for a couple months and there are there are a couple things that we still want to refine and we're hoping to find some some uh, wheel drives that are going to suit it so that we can get all the clearance we want but his initial proof of concept and the second iteration are both already fabulous machines. We just got to figure out how to turn it into a, a market ready solution. And, uh, and then we'll be able to offer uh, a walk behind cultivating tractor 
you know, with a warranty, brand new, you don't have to learn how to do it yourself and, uh, and be able to support it throughout North America. So we're, we're excited about that, but it's probably, it's still a ways off, but it's coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then with that, you mentioned like the wheel drives, what are the challenging components of putting something together like that? I think one of the challenges that we face is uh, lead times and uh, suppliers, you know, not even <laughs> not even responding to our calls because our our prospective volume is mm. is minimal, yeah. and uh, they're in an industry that's that's in a big boom, and all of the you know the the folks who build lawnmowers by the thousands and scissor lifts and forklifts and heavy equipment and earth moving, all of these industries are are quickly trying to move into electrification so they don't get left behind and become obsolete in the next 10 years. Mm. Um, And so when we say we're a small startup in Ontario and we're thinking we could probably sell X of these they say, that sounds like a nice project. We'll get back to you. Mm. Um, but we've also made some really good uh, contacts. And like the, the technical puzzles are, are all surmountable. And we're keen to get to, the, get to the bottom of all of it and figure out a design that is, that is affordable enough to fabricate and, uh, and bring to market that we can be really competitive on cost as well as providing a machine that's just more pleasant and efficient to use but uh you know it's a puzzle and also the three of us involved in it are all you know we all came to this from farming and two of us are still farming and uh so there's only so much progress we can make Mm -hmm. in in so much time but it's really exciting i didn't i never thought i'd be able to say yeah i'm working with these two great guys on designing a brand new walk behind electric tractor. That's so mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now with the, the walk behind cultivation, um, are you doing everything from small seeded crops? Or are you focusing more on a little bit bigger transplanted crops? Um, it's pretty flexible. Thanks to the, the tooling selection uh, that, that Ryan Thiessen and Tillmore have put together and made available, you can, you can build any kind of cultivating rig for a two wheeler for a walk behind. Uh, and it, and it, especially if your walk behind is electric, you can slow it down to a walking pace to go through your just germinated carrots. Um, Mm. and you can get good at it and you can, you can get as, as, you know, just Jedi, uh, as, Jason Weston and be able to do it with your eyes closed, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty powerful setup. You know, the, the distance from your eyeballs to your crop is like basically looking down at your feet at the ground in front of you. And then you're, you're articulating the machine with your, your arms and your shoulders and it corrects right away and tracks. It's, it's pretty awesome. So it's, yes, you can, you can, kind of cut your teeth on more tolerant crops and go through your brassicas at a jogging pace, but you can also set up tooling that doesn't move too much soil into the row and really get in and, and hug some young, some young direct seeded crops and, and not have a problem with it and then come back another week or two later with something that's a little bit more aggressive and move soil into the row or runs fingers into the row once the crop can tolerate it. And one of the nice things about the walk behinds is that switching tooling is really fast and it doesn't cost $5,000 for each of your tooling setups. Um, whereas that's sometimes the case with the, with a four wheel cultivating tractor, you can do three rows at a time or two rows at a time, but I've sometimes purchased setups for the four wheeler. And by the time you finish getting it all, you know, specked out you're like oh look yeah it's another four or six or seven thousand dollars worth of worth of steel and it's a a little bit easier to get into it with the walk behind because you say oh i really like to try torsion weeders or spring hose or i'd like to try this well it might only cost you four or six hundred dollars to experiment in that in that vein so i find it's a really it's a nice 
accessible platform in that regard too. Mm -hmm. So let's talk some cost here. So we talked earlier about the BCS electric version there. What is a, a conversion for that cost if someone were to buy all the parts? I know that you're, you know, you're, um, you know, you said stealing so many parts from these like old things that you're getting given, but if someone had to go buy all the parts, what would that run? You think? Yeah. A couple of times I've done the kind of thought experiment of, uh, you know, what would, what would the parts cost if you had to buy them all brand new? And I feel like the BCS, the last time I did that, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like $3,000, always assuming, maybe assuming uh, that you're doing a little bit of recycling for the battery because brand new lithium batteries are still a little bit cost prohibitive, but you can mm -hmm. probably find someone locally who's a, who's a tinkerer from the world of e-bikes or, or from electric, you know, do-it-yourself electric vehicles who could assemble you a pack uh, a lot more affordably. So that I usually discount the price of the batteries a little bit, but it, I would think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3000 to 4000 bucks to convert uh, a BCS. And it's, you know, it's about comparable to doing an Alice Chalmers G where, mm -hmm. you, you know, the parts are part of the expense and then finding the time and the, the expertise um, in both those cases, you need to usually need some kind of machining capability, or you have to hire someone to do it for you to make the kind of adapter pieces that fit one type of drivetrain onto the other and, and mate them together in a way that lines them up properly. And so for the, the Alice G, those parts are available uh, to be ordered from a machine shop in, in New York State that accompanied Ron Coleslaw in the original, and they continue to make them available. I did a, a G for someone last spring, and we uh -huh. used the same same kit from uh, Nycamp Tool, and it was really fun and easy. And like I'm quite confident the Alice Chalmers G from 1940s and 50s, it's by far the most common electric tractor in North America these days. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a while before anyone catches up because people have been converting them for almost a decade and a half, I think. It's, and, and it's a good kit and it's easy and, you know, it could, it could be updated a bit and people got to, we got to stop using lead batteries because they're just a kind of a money pit. But at the same time, a lot of that, that conversion kit still stands up to scrutiny and there it's still yeah. it's still the most accessible conversion project out there because it's documented and uh and it's it's relatively straightforward mm -hmm. all right so you mentioned lead acid there and it's from what i'm hearing you say that lithium is the way to go yeah because you know the the questions of leads one of its only benefit is that or no it's not its only benefit it's affordable enough to make although you can't swap out your lead batteries for a new set, which you, you know, with it not costing an arm and a leg, it's still going to be like, say you have a, one of those electric John Deere gators. That's a, like a, a four wheeler with a, uh -huh. with a bed on the back. And they've been, they've made a two wheel drive electric version for ages, but it's something like it's more than a thousand dollars for new batteries. And you pretty much have to do that every five years with lead acid because they just, they fade and they self-discharge and one of them will end up with a bad cell that's a dead short and then it'll bring down its neighbors. And then suddenly you've got a battery pack that only has 40% of the range that it originally had and it can't deliver the power. And then you mm -hmm. say, okay, time for a new battery pack. And you call for pricing and it's $1,200. And doing that every five years just seems hard to hard to swallow um especially if there would be other benefits like better power output and reduced weight and possibly being able to share the battery with other things um so now that there are there we've had electric cars on the road since 2010 when chevy came out with the volt and nissan started making leafs um so there have been there have been cars winding up in the scrapyard with still good lithium batteries for a long time. So that's the, mm -hmm. that definitively the cheapest way to get at them. Um, but it takes more of a commitment to learning how to break down big packs and uh, assemble your own small packs. 
but there's now a, a substantial aftermarket for uh, folks making making kits for golf carts and John Deere Gators and all of that. So that mm. that whole economy has kind of filled in and the, the offering is much stronger and there's price competition. So it's gradually coming down. Um, mm. So yeah, for me that I was kind of, I had hoped to get into electric tractor conversions, even back when I was, studying agriculture um but it wasn't until a friend clued me in and he's like no man you can go and buy a whole volt battery at the scrapyard nowadays and that was sometime around 2015 he told me this and i was like really you can actually do that he said yeah man just start calling around and you'll get back then you would get three or four scrapyards who would say no the chevy volt doesn't have a battery or (laughs) no i don't know what you're talking about or (laughs) yes i have one it's the small 12 volt and then and then eventually you'd find someone who was like yeah sure i could sell you that how much you want to give me and you'd be like well <laughs> yeah. uh, how about two thousand dollars like, yeah all right i'll uh, yeah sure i'll have them pull it out uh, come by tomorrow yeah and it's a little bit better controlled nowadays because everyone's clued into the fact that these batteries are worth more than the rest of the car but um you can still get them and you can still and given that we need so little power for our small farm tools, like I could take a Chevy Volt battery. The last time I bought one, I split it with like four other farmers and mm. we all got useful packs for useful projects, but we don't need that much storage power because we're just not, we're not trying to drive on the highway with a two mm-hmm. and a half ton vehicle. Mm-hmm. So then um, those big batteries are just a whole bunch of small batteries. Exactly. Everything is built out of cells. Like a, a double A is a single cell. And uh, if you peeled open a Tesla, you'd find a cylindrical cells that look kind of like a double A. They're 18 millimeters by 65 millimeters, or they're 21 by 70, depending on what generation. But under the floor of the Tesla, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of those little cylindrical cells all, all wired together in series and in parallel. And, and the, the pack under the floor spits out you know 400 600 volts but it's just a whole bunch of those little three and a half volt cells all wired up in in series and parallel Uh uh so they they can be broken down it depends like every every manufacturer assembles their packs in different ways that are more or less uh easy to work with but uh there's a there's an impressive uh kind of recycling economy that has grown up around the industry that of electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know one of the concerns with you know brand new electric vehicles, especially the number that are being manufactured, is the how the procurement of the rare earth minerals is. But I mean, for the small farmer, obviously, you're pretty much it sounds like using just mostly almost castaways from that whole industry. Yeah, it's like I kind of see our role as a uh, as extracting the final value before those before the the batteries need to be recycled um say they start at 100 percent of their their rated capacity and uh and then after 10 or 15 years in a passenger vehicle they're down to 60 or 70 percent of their rated capacity they've still got eight times the energy density of lead acid so that's fine Uh with me and i'm not building a motorcycle or an automobile where space is at a premium i can put a box on my tractor that's full of batteries that's got a little bit more kind of quote unquote wasted space because i'm buying secondhand batteries Uh and then maybe i can run them down for another 10 or 20 years and until they really are you know adequately depleted that maybe they're maybe they're only good for stationary storage and they go into a shipping container somewhere and provide mm. brownout protection for the grid but like mm-hmm. where, wherever that point is where it actually makes sense to recycle them to like break them down into their components and try to recover the the lithium and the cadmium and the other precious metals that went into it we've got a lot of time to figure out the recycling especially if we can find non-road going, less energy intensive uses for them that kind of extend the second lifespan out from the 
you know, that fateful day when someone hits a tree with their Tesla, I don't think those batteries should be going to a, a recycling plant. They should be getting the rest of their useful life out of them first. And, mm-hmm. and if we use them, you know, relatively non-intensively, their useful lifespan might be really long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, we're almost the Wall-E of the, you know, the, the electric battery world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, th- we have gone over an hour and uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, what, anything else you'd like to share about like this? I know we've, we kind of focused mostly on the electric, which is where I wanted to take this, because I think that's something that you're passionate about and you've done a tremendous amount of research and innovation in. And so um, anything else about that you'd want to share with farmers? Um, yeah, I, I think it's really fun and exciting. And, uh, the, the kind of the commitment to understanding it might not be as, uh, as high a threshold as, as some people think. Um, I, I like this stuff and I learn it relatively easily, but, you know, it was only five or six years ago that I still thought I was going to have to use lead acid batteries and I hadn't even really started working on my first conversion project. And I've definitely dedicated a lot of time to it in the last five years, but the threshold for learning about this stuff isn't all that high. And I also encourage uh, folks who are interested in farming, but have real technical aptitude. There's a real niche for um, young engineers or technically minded people to, to get into this field and be able to help small farmers uh, run a business doing conversion projects, uh, run a business repurposing battery packs, helping farmers to, to build storage setups that'll allow them to have uh, backup power and inverters to run the greenhouse during a power outage without having to fire up a generator. Uh, I really think there's a, there's a neat niche here and uh, as passionate as I am about it, I can't do it all. And uh, I'd love to assist others in, uh, in learning what they can and, and kind of like appropriating this, this tech so that we can put it to use, put it to work for us on small farms, because it's, it's been my experience that it, it really is a, a, a technology or a, a range of technologies that are, that are super gratifying to put to work for us on our small farms. But uh, there, there's a bit of a learning curve because we've gotten really accustomed to the, the technologies that we grew up with and it's, we're at a kind of turning point. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And of all of those electric, well, it doesn't have to be electric. What's your favorite tool? Hmm. I really like the, uh, the planet junior walk behind. Um, it's such an elegant, simple machine and it's probably, you know, it was made in the 1940s and once it had an electric motor put on it instead of a gas engine, it's like it finally became what it always wanted to be, which is this super lightweight, really easy to use. It's so intuitive that you can, you know, you can teach a kid how to use it in Mm. about two and a half minutes. And they're like, Oh, okay. So what do you want me to do with this now? Um, And it's, it's such an elegant piece of equipment design. Um, So I think it's my current favorite. Uh, I'm having loads of fun fixing up uh, Tillmore power rocks uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) on, on a, the great advice of a certain Michael Kilpatrick. I'm going to make it really, really wide. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, no, you and I have been through that previously, but I'm going to try, try it out on the wide stance because I think it's got a niche on our farm. Yeah. Even though it's going to make it really unwieldy for some things, I think it'd be neat to try a two-wheeler that can straddle a whole bed and uh, see if we can use it to haul a harvest wagon and like get into the middle of a cropped area and also do uh, do seeding and weeding jobs and that kind of thing. So those are the two things I'm excited about presently, but yeah, I think in that situation, it might just work. Um, I I think what the problem was is we had it super wide and we're trying to run a three row basket with it and the basket was just way too heavy. And I think, you know, they told me, they said it'd probably be too heavy, but we're like, well, they'll try, we'll try it. So we tried it. And it just didn't it just, yeah, I was having a hard time pulling it, but I think if you want to pull a harvest wagon, I think that would actually work out really nice. And with seating, because you don't have to be, 
Um, you can give a little bit, you don't want to be sloppy with it because you really want those rows to be straight. But yeah, I'm I'm super interested to see how it comes out. And I'm I'm more ex- I'm very excited to be proven wrong because it means that there's another innovation that we can have for small scale farmers. Yeah, um, definitely. I think it's also probably a good fit on a farm where you already have uh, a walk behind on the, mm-hmm. the more standard narrow stance straddling one row um, mm-hmm. that it might not be a great choice for your walk behind number one, but I'm hoping for walk behind number two. It's a, it's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, Reed, thank you so much for your time today. This was fascinating. I'm, uh, you know, super excited about just, you know, this industry, just in, you know, since I've been farming, how much this has come and just every year we seem to have further and further advances and thank you for being a part of it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and thanks for continuing to uh, seek out interesting stories and share them with us. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your day. All right. Take care, Michael. Yep. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a thousand certified organic family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. The current application season ends soon, so be sure to apply today. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.